When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK. And on today's show, we'll look back at Saturday's draw at the Vitality Stadium as three points and a certain title victory were snatched at us in the 98th minute after Dom Solanke's penalty. But there's still plenty to be optimistic about. Fulham are already promoted and it is surely just a matter of time before that trophy is in our hands. It was a glorious day on the South Coast and here to discuss it with me are three others that managed to get their way into the away end. Jack Kelly, hello. Hello, hello. Dan Cook, hello. Hi, Sammy. And Tom Greatrex, hello. Hi, Sammy. Well, thank you all for being here today. Uh, there's plenty, I think, to get our teeth into. Scott Parker, the match in general, two footballing philosophies going head to head. And we'll look ahead to Nottingham Forest on Tuesday as Fulham all but surely will play the kids and let Nottingham Forest roll us over 5-0. Jack, what were the best three word reviews that came in from last night? Yep, um, we've got at Augie Lamsick. Foul flowing football at Chris Lewis one four four Harry Ball last kick at Doy Doy sixty four yellow card confetti which is my favourite at Jakob Krupa them fine margins and at TJ Fogs forty six other Scots whistle. Very good, Jack. Thank you for doing the three-word reviews. Get involved with that after every game as ever. Uh, Tom, I'll come to you first. What was your feeling after the match? Was it disappointment? Was it a kind of, I don't really care, it doesn't really matter feeling? I came away a bit conflicted because ultimately we were denied what would have been an amazing celebration at the end. But in reality, we know that one point, three points doesn't really matter. No, it didn't. But it would have been nice, I think, just to have held on that extra, however many more minutes Graham Scott was going to play. Um, till he finally uh, finally blew the final whistle. Um, yeah, a little bit disappointed, but as you say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything very much. Um, and I found it more interesting yesterday, actually, walk, after the game, walking back to when I parked my car, talking to some Bournemouth fans about what they felt about their team and their manager, which was um, quite enlightening and, um, and interesting. What, would, what did they say? Well, it was... Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but towards the end of the game, sort of about five or six minutes from the end, you could see, um, I think it was um, Smith and Cook and a couple of other players just to be trying to get their crowd to get some sort of reaction and try to get them going a bit. And they weren't really responding. And when Scott Parker at the end did his thing where he sort of sarcastically applauded the Fulham fans, then he tried to sort of get the Bournemouth fans to make a bit of noise. They weren't really responding then either. And I was talking to some afterwards and they sort of, they sort of feel like, 
you know, they've got a, an abundance of attacking talent, but a lot of their play, they just find it quite dull. So even though they're going to get promoted, almost certainly going to get promoted, I think, um, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of, there's a huge amount of love for Scott Parker there. And I'm not just saying this through, you know, full of eyes. I think, I think also, you know, his, some of his comments and some of the things he's been saying in the last couple of weeks, he probably wants to pay a little bit more attention to his own fan base because I don't think they're entirely convinced by him at all. What I thought was really funny, Sammy, was that in terms of like how people felt after the game, was in the end a point works better for us, right? But it felt good for Bournemouth because they took a loss, what seemed like it was going to be a loss and they managed to get a point out of it, was that both sets of players seemed intent on making it seem like they were happier than the other set of players. <laughs> so like at the end of the game, like Bournemouth players were all running around giving it big celebrations, as were Fulham players. And it was almost like they were trying to get their fans to understand that they should be really happy with this result. And I've never seen something like that on a pitch, two sets of teams celebrating, trying to outdo the other. It's almost politics in a way, isn't it? Like, oh yeah, no, last night was a really good result, but you didn't win the election. Doesn't matter. We won key battlegrounds, you know. Yeah. It was. It definitely had that kind of feeling to it. I mean, Jack, I imagine from what I know about you, your reaction was basically the Clarkson meme. Oh no, anyway. Yeah, I've been saying that for the last four weeks. Um, whenever we drop points, but um, yeah, it was just a case of like we went down to the front um, to basically celebrate and we were you know I was looking at the clock my friend had a timer and he was like it's like a minute to go they had a free kick and then suddenly because I'm very very short I can't really see what's going on and uh, and uh, a penalty was given to which they put it away and you know I just sort of thought well that's disappointing but it's literally doesn't matter whatsoever and what made me laugh a lot was um the full-time whistle Fabio Carvalho's reaction because he came over and tried to like g up the fans and I was like this is bizarre. We've just conceded a 95th, 96th, whatever it was, minute equaliser. And we've got Fabio Carvalho acting like we've just won four, no, four or five nil. It was, um, it was bizarre. <laughs> and uh, I th- I'm sure we'll get into it about the Parker thing and, and you know, his little thumbs up or little clap to the uh, Fulham fans like passive aggressively. And I, I, we were trying to debate, you know, in the moment when we were face to face with him, when he was coming over to the fans, was it, rude was it was it a bit uh classless for us to be singing what we're singing but i'm sure we'll get into it uh, because it's actually a very interesting debate i'm happy to get into it now because <laughs> for a long long period of that game there wasn't a lot to talk about it was um two footballing teams at a stalemate and really it took a a, a header that almost felt like it wasn't a goal and, and a penalty for actually goals to be scored in the match. I mean, Parker's comments afterwards, um, Tom, I found fascinating. Um, Peter Rutzler tweeted this out. And so Parker said about the reception he got from Fulham fans. I mean, you, you, you can't read this and not hear it in Scott Parker's voice. Football at times is a bit pantomime. You have a hero and a villain. I get that. When I took it over at FFC, they were a bit in despair, really. I sweated every bit of me to try and put it back together. Of course it hurts me, but this is the world we're in. Um... <laughs> Tom, I mean, all the fans, all the chants yesterday were about Scott Parker. Some of them were the ones we know, the He's a Genius song, and some of them, like Harry Arter, He Shagged Your Wife, just made me chuckle because it was just so absurd. Uh, All the focus was on him from the Fulham end yesterday. And those comments to me make it sound like Parker doesn't understand why he's got that reception from the Fulham fans. 
I, I just can't understand how Scott Barker doesn't understand. He knows what football fans are like. And look, maybe... You know, Scott Parker didn't do something horrific to Fulham. He just tried to negotiate his exit and and was looking out for himself. And like, who doesn't do that when they're leaving a job? But I, I also just think it's all a bit of fun. And I, and I feel like he's just taken it a bit, a bit personally almost. But then again, if 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 two thousand people are going to shout those kind of things at you for a whole game, maybe you do take it personally. Well, you know, maybe he could go and have a word with Steve Bruce to see what Steve Bruce gets at every other club that he's probably managed when he ever goes back again. You know, it's, it's part of it's part of what happens. Um, I mean, I think also, frankly, you know, he's brought it on himself a little bit. Some of his comments ahead of the game, you know, about mm. it to say, you know, our team is the same as his team. Well, I don't quite think he properly understands that that is sort of the point. It's basically the same team, but we're a lot better with a different manager and getting, you know, the players are a lot better than they were uh, towards the end um, when he was in charge. And, you know, that's a point of comparison that's therefore bound to be made. Um, you know, I think I think Scott Barker probably, you know, hasn't really quite got over the way it ended with Fulham. And that's what it's about, really. I don't think he quite is quite sort of um, realised that, you know, whatever personality issues he had with the owner, the owner's son, the you know some of the players and everything else, it didn't. It wasn't. We weren't in a good place last summer. It was probably suited everybody that he left. Actually, um, he got what he wanted, uh, a job that he wanted to do. Um, we've got a, a, you know a, a, a much better, I think, much more mature, much more rounded, much more experienced manager in place, and who's proved what he can do with the players and on the pitch. And I think, I think that's the reality of it. He just probably. You know, if I was giving him a word of advice, it'd be just to get over yourself a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's my thing, Dan, is I think Tom makes a great point there. He left in the summer under not great terms. And then since he's gone to Bournemouth, has constantly said things to, to rile up the Fulham fans. The whole thing about Dominic Solanke being the best striker in the in the division. And I know he's kind of got to say that, but it was quite clearly not the case. And then his comments in the week, I just... I just don't know really what he expects. So we're all going to go like, oh, yes, welcome back, Scott. We all love you. Like, yes, football fans tend to take things too far, but it's just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what he's just, he's, I feel like he's missing the point that it's not necessarily really what happened on the pitch that has led to this. You know, yes, he got us up. And whilst we weren't overly enamoured with that whole season, he still got praise and and no one was going after him. And then I personally don't think that you can have too much of a go at him for us going down on a personal level because it just was that his managerial skills weren't good enough to keep us up last season. And we had other issues as well. But what is the reason why we don't like him is the way he left. And I think that's what he's missing. It's not that we want to put him down for the job he did because I, I would imagine that most of us are grateful that we had that day against Brentford and that we did go up because quite rightly if as people said if we hadn't have gone up that day who knows where we'd be right now but it's how he left and the sort of the classlessness of how he left from what we know from the outside anyway that has led to this and I don't like the fact that he's trying to almost give himself some sort of Fulham status by saying these things you know, it's not for him to say whether we should like him or not. He doesn't need to try and remind people what he did at the club. He should just acknowledge that actually Fulham fans are happier now than they were six, 12, 18 months ago, all the way through his tenure. And that's just how it is. And that's just the world we live in, Sammy. <laughs> <laughs> Jack. Um, I, I think this is a, a case of 
Scott Parker having major main character syndrome. He thinks everything is about him and his actions. And for a man who's been around the game for so long, playing and now in management, I don't understand why he doesn't why he doesn't quite grasp the the stick he's getting or the the nature of the stick he's getting. For me personally, when I was, you know saying wanker, wanker, wanker to him. I was I was probably reflecting, going, well, why am I saying this to him? And the main um, conclusion I came to was his treatment of, for me, club legend Alexander Mitrovic. This is a player who, you know, what was integral into getting us up under Parker, was then frozen out uh, because Parker decided to play a new system. And I think for us as fans, we all wanted to see Mitrovic play in the Premier League last season. Uh, and... The fact of the matter is, it it became a, a thing of it's either Mitrovic is going to leave or Parker's going to leave, and for that Parker has blood on his hands because if we if we would have lost Mitrovic in the summer, I think that would have been a huge asset, a huge club legend, a huge adored player gone from our club for for the sake of uh, for the sake of Parker's style of play, which which wasn't suited. Uh, which which lacked goals, lacked creativity, and we saw that in Bournemouth's play yesterday, and. Um, I was. I would be extremely sad if that was the case. If Mitrovic was the one to leave at the end, and thank God, you now look at it in retrospect. Parker's left, and Mitrovic has forty-one goals. I was literally speaking to some friends last night. Over the last three seasons, Mitrovic has scored seventy goals in the league. Uh, yeah, albeit he scored three goals last season, seventy goals in three league seasons for a striker in the well, what was second tier and you know one season of the Premier League is absolutely remarkable. I'm so pleased that. Silver is the one that came in. Parker's the one who left, and Silver was the one who put the arm around Mitrovic. And look at the season he's had; it's been absolutely remarkable. And uh, yeah, so that, that's for me why Parker it doesn't sit well in my book. Uh, I, I think it wasn't just about Mitrovic. Actually, there's other players as well that were, you know, felt um, as though they'd been effectively cast aside during the course of the season before. Um, and I think you know, if he had a stayed. Even if, even if by some miracle Mitrovic had stayed as well, I don't think we'd have been anywhere near where we are now. We'd have probably been like where West Brom are or something. You know, we'd have struggled because the relationships have fundamentally broken down. Um, and you know, I think there's a there's a sense to which I think it's you know still a relatively inexperienced manager. The man management part of it or the player management part of it, I don't think necessarily he's he's yet developed um, or certainly in his full experience. Maybe he's been a bit better at it at Bournemouth. Um, but certainly towards the end of Fulham, I think they, those those were the, the key key reasons I think to his to his undoing and why why ultimately him deciding to leave, albeit trying to negotiate a a, a payoff while he was leaving, and even though he wanted to leave himself, you know, and the whole of that saga actually has done us done both parties a lot of good in the end. Um, and if that means he gets a bit of stick, then he gets a bit of stick. Yeah, I mean, Dan, it was a clear tactical battle yesterday. Fulham were trying to play through Parker's system, which, look, give him credit, it held us at bay for large chunks of the game. Um, I was with you yesterday in the stands and you noted early how once again they'd stuck Dominic Solanke on Tosin Adarabayo, didn't allow him to play out from the back. Um, they overloaded on their right wing towards Joe Bryan, who had a bit of a torrid 
first half. Didn't do anything wrong, but just put in so many fouls that he was literally one, I don't know, one bad move away from a yellow card. It was so close um, to then getting that second yellow that would have meant uh, a red. Uh, And Fulham did find it tough throughout pretty much the whole match. Obviously, once we went 1-0 up and then Parker threw on a load of players, we did get a bit more joy because there was a bit more space in defence. But Parker's built them well. We, we know what the style of play is. We know that it's difficult to play against. I do wonder if they will have a little bit of joy in the Premier League next season, particularly at home, because it's not easy to play good football against. No, I, I think actually, as you said, like give them credit. I think they actually deserve a fair amount of credit because they were very well drilled, like very, very well drilled positionally. And we found it really difficult to break break them down, not even even just break them down in the final third, but actually get out of our own half because of the way they set up and the way that they're so coordinated in their press. I think that is really impressive. And I think that's one area where Scott Parker seems to have, have learnt over time uh, of how to set up his team off the ball. Where I think... Scott Parker has big issues and, and where I don't know if, if this is a man who's got necessarily a, a, a big future in management. I mean, it might be like a, a over the top thing to say, but is that I don't think he's learned how to get his teams to play while in possession. I, I haven't seen a man who in now, what, his third year, third full year of management, he doesn't seem to know how to break teams down. He doesn't, his players seem to be sort of shackled. They don't seem to be allowed to be as creative as they can be. You look at that team that Bournemouth have got, you know, Ryan Christie, you've got Todd Cantwell coming on. You had Philip Billing in, in that sort of 10 role and then on came Jamal Lowe. You've got Dominic Solanke up top. I mean, that, that's attacking talent. That's really strong. And I'd say it very much rivals our attacking talent, but they're not allowed to sort of express themselves. Like, I just don't understand why he's he's so stubborn with the way he plays. Because if you can combine how they are off the ball with maybe how we are on the ball, they'd have a really, really good team. And they'd probably have done a lot better this season. I mean, obviously they're still second, but it was an interesting battle. And I thought that it was a bit of a rubbish game all in all because it was two teams who are very well drilled, who know their philosophy and, and know what their manager wants them to do. And they both basically tried to stop each other doing what they wanted to do. And it led to the game we saw. And I was a little bit disappointed from us because I thought we could have probably played through them a bit better. But just to round it off, yeah, credit to how he set the team up because I thought Bournemouth were very solid off the ball. Uh, Jack, let's come on to the goal. Uh, One of the bizarrest goals that I've seen. And Dan raised the point, there's been a few this season which have just been utterly mad um you know and hard to even know that it's gone in from the uh, away end um but it was a good cross by Harrison Reed. one of those I was like oh that Mitrovic has got a lot of work to, to get that in and my line in the away end was bang on the kind of goal line I had the exact kind of right angle for it no way in hell I thought that was in and you'd look from the replay on the telly and it just looks like Travis saves it and I mean this was one odd thing from Parker he's questioning the Hawkeye technology and look I know Bournemouth have history there because they think they got relegated because Hawkeye failed in that famous Aston Villa Sheffield United game um, all those years ago but I don't know I look at the replay I look at the goal decision system that uh, comes up after it and it just looks like a very good decision one of those that for me justifies goal line technology I find it weird to question it I mean it just 
sometimes your eyes play tricks on you and it looks like it's not over the line. But for me, I just think it is one of those things. I find it yeah. mad that people are questioning it. No, you can't question something that's definite and a fact. And the technology works in a way of if the ball, the whole ball crosses the whole of the line, it's a goal. And if the referee Graham Scott's watch buzzes, it's a goal. It doesn't matter if it doesn't look like it's a goal. If it's over the line, it's a goal. I don't see why Parker's wasting energy by, by questioning it because he's probably defending his keeper saying he made a good save. Yeah, but if, he, if he's behind the line, it's just, it's pointless. It, I don't even know why we're talking about it now. It's, 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 it's a goal. So um, Parker again, main character syndrome. Bizarre. I think he's a bizarre man. Tom, vindication for Mitrovic. He re- I mean, he always enjoys the celebrations. He always enjoys milking it. He always enjoys thrusting his arms wide um, uh, one or two extra times to the crowd to, to lap it up. Um, but he really, really enjoyed that one. There was extra relish to the celebration and we all know why. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, where I was sitting, I was to- more towards the halfway line. So didn't had an even, you know, didn't have a very good view of it at all. Didn't look like it had gone in. And so... My reaction when you could see the referee look at his watch and then point to his watch as it was given was to laugh. And a lot of people were actually, it was just a very, very funny way to score a goal. And especially for Mitrovic, as you say, for obvious reasons to score that goal. Um, and, you know, the sort of bizarre delay in the celebration with the goalkeeper celebrating the save and then us celebrating the goal. I think it was just one of those magic moments, which um, in a game that was short in quality, it, was, it sort of makes it, made it, you know, memorable and very, very enjoyable. I mean, it almost kind of made it more funny, um, Dan, yeah. the fact that it, it, it was in such bizarre circumstances that we actually got this goal. Like, I don't know, it, it, it almost was more enjoyable. Obviously, you like to think that when something is a proper net buster and ripples the net, that's the best feeling there is. But in this one, almost the absurdness of it actually improved the moment. Oh yeah. And even in the replays as well, like on what Tom said about the keeper celebrating, there's a great camera angle from sort of facing the goal of all the Bournemouth fans behind the goal, getting up and applauding Travers. And then the moment that they see <laughs> it's, it's Harrison Reed who leads the celebrations as well, which I love is that he just starts running towards the away end. Mitrovic still isn't sure. Yeah. It's just one of those great moments. It'll go down it, very much reminiscent of the sort of weird scenes at Huddersfield when it just gets kicked into Mitrovic and no one quite understands what's going on. And then suddenly it's in the net. It's brilliant. I loved it. And the celebrations were great as well. I think we've got such a lovely togetherness in this team. And it's it's one of those where you, you hear people talk about it and it sounds boring. But like the fact that it's just full team celebrations, everyone's fighting for each other. And I love that. Yeah. And, and the fans in great voice, particularly after the goal. I mean, you must have heard our singing Championi right across the South Coast. It felt like we were booming it out like and I know the away end's always good at Fulham but like it was extra good after that and and obviously we thought we were going to win the league at that point um Tom obviously the perfect day the perfect day was spoiled late on uh, a 94th minute penalty uh whereas in that was when the penalty was given it then got scored in the 98th minute by the time there was a a melee had been cleared Marco Silva got sent off I mean Marco Silva afterwards saying that he didn't think it was a pen and I just can't see that as the hill you want to die on Marco because as much as I look at it it's just clumsy from Wilson completely unnecessary as well I don't think Smith's actually in that much of a dangerous position to do a lot I think he's kind of miscontrolled it and I don't he'd have had to put in a hell of a cross I think to find any of the Bournemouth players for for a shooting opportunity it's just a as Dan said to me at the time it was a winger's challenge 
yeah, it was. It, I mean, I, I don't think. I mean, I think Marco Silva was commenting about it not being a penalty. You take as seriously as Scott Parker's about the goal line technology being forty. They were, you know, it was. It was a. It was a silly challenge. Didn't need to happen. Um, but I guess it was just you know the last dying embers of the game, desperation to keep them out of the area, trying to keep them away from away from our goal. Um, and it's unfortunate. I mean, I think the thing, I mean, that's, that's the quickest that Graham Scott moved all afternoon was to send Marco Silver off, wasn't it? He sprinted right over to the dugout. He wasn't rest of the time. He hardly got out of the centre circle. So it was um, um, interesting to see he managed to maintain that bit of bit of energy to get some attention on himself. Um, I, I tell you what, I'm, one thing I'm disappointed with though is it wasn't a great penalty. I didn't think, and I'm trying to struggle to remember when we've when we've actually saved a penalty. And one thing to be ready for next season is with VAR, you seem to be a lot more penalties. We'll face not just better penalty takers, but and Solanke is pretty good at it. But it wasn't that was it. But yesterday's, his, I don't think his penalty was that strong. And you know, I think it's something that whether it's Rodak, whoever is in goal, we've got to really work on because um, otherwise, I think we can find ourselves in some some serious trouble next season, serious disadvantage to get we need to get better at that. I think. Um, Dan, I feel like this is the moment to let you um, unwind about uh, Mr. Scott. Um, a bizarre refereeing display. And from a Premier League referee, I mean, there was so much to get into here. And look, Bournemouth fans are as angry as we are for some reason. Yeah, I, I, the thing is, right, and if we're talking about pantomime villains, genuinely, and I don't know if a lot of people have seen this, I don't know if it will show up on the telly, but there were twice, twice yesterday when Graham Scott, and this is where I wasn't sure how serious, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say how seriously he was taking this game. There was twice in the game when he sort of played up to the Fulham fans, to the away fans. You know, we were shouting about whether the ball was in the quadrant for the corner kick. And he ran over, checked it, said it was okay, and then put his hands on his hip and sort of tutted at the Fulham fans as if they were trying to wind him up. And whilst maybe that's okay, sort of last game of the season, nothing on the line, 12th place, 14th. I mean, this is still an important game and I've never seen a referee do that. Like surely as a referee, your job is to be as anonymous as possible, not trying to be the main man. You know, no one's there to see you, Graham Scott. And it was unlike the actual decisions themselves, he very much killed a game of football. Like I, he set himself on a sort of, he set the precedent early on with the level of fouls he was going to give. And that meant that he had to give them throughout the game. And whilst you can't necessarily say any of them were, more, well, many of them were wrong decisions, they were all soft. So many of them were soft. And it's because he set precedent early on, it meant that he had to keep doing it. And then when he was booking players for things that you could maybe argue didn't need booking, it means that he has to then continue doing that throughout the rest of the game. And I just I just didn't like it as a refereeing display because he just stopped any momentum, any flow. It was just the game was so stop start, and that was because of him. And it was just it was just such a weird refereeing performance. I don't think it was that out of character though. I mean Graham Scott is a referee who has, I think, what Jack called, you know, main character syndrome or main man syndrome. Absolutely he does. And he always has. I mean, he's a frustrated, he used, I think he was goalkeeper of Abingdon to Hound for a, a little bit and thinks he should have been a player. And he's and he's seen it all the way through his career. You remember he was a referee that the Premier League tried to get demoted off their list back a few years ago and he had to appeal to stay on. And Keith Hackett said it was a mistake he was ever promoted. I mean, you only have to think back to the last time he refereed us, which is that game at Newcastle, um, to remember, you know, just some of his judgment is all over the place. But he does, he loved playing up to it. It was, it was the hands on the hips. It was the sort of, when there was a shirt pull that he gave 
the wrong way against Kenny Tete and stood there and sort of, you know, theoretically, theatrically um, grabbed his own shirt and all that sort of stuff. It was all, it was the whole way through the whole of that game. Because uh, he, he has a, he decides he's to sort of give himself this reputation of being a tough, no-nonsense guy on um, on time-wasting and game management. And that's his sort of self-created reputation. But what it ends up doing is exactly what happened yesterday, which is from the very start, because of the number of uh, fouls given, because of the number of bookings made, you you end up stifling a game. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's a big contribution, I think, to why it wasn't a great game yesterday. You know, to some extent, the team's counsel cancelled each other out balls. So I think the refereeing performance was poor. And I was just, this is a podcast last week on Thursday. And I think you were saying that, you know, one of the things you won't miss about the championship is the referees and at least we better referees in the Premier League. And just, that's a reminder. He's a Premier League referee. We'll have him next season. Yeah, I, I always think this. I mean, I guess now with the Premier League, at least you have VAR and some of the outrageous calls can be overturned. And generally, I feel like they're getting more right than wrong with VAR. Now it is reasonably improved. And look, we had a couple of shockers, didn't we, um, in, in the Premier League. For me, it's always the Lamina handball against Spurs that I always come back to when I when I think back about VAR. But more often than not now, they're getting it right. There's a couple where you're like, why aren't you using it? Isn't that clear and obvious? But I, I, I am looking forward to that next season, but VAR would not have um, done any of the big decisions differently yesterday, um, particularly the penalty. Uh, there's no way that's getting overturned. Um, Jack, just in terms of when Fulham can win the league, uh, we're nine points ahead of Bournemouth. They have four games remaining. Um, so effectively getting to 91 points, four more points for Fulham. He's guaranteed title, three more points effectively wins us the title because Bournemouth are never going to overtake our goal difference when it's 31 better than theirs um, at this stage of the season. Um, does that change the focus a little bit for the next three games? Um, we have a few questions and I, I'll, I'll get it to it now that uh, people wondering, we're not actually going to bottle it, are we? No, I don't think so. Um, although, I mean, you can look at every team we've got to play and they have far more importance they will feel that we have in terms of, you know, we've already got promotion sealed. That was our goal, but obviously, you know, four points or three points, it's, you know, we could draw every, every game and do it, but you know, you want to do it on, on a winning the game. Forest is going to be extremely interesting because I'm sort of conflicted. Obviously I want Fulham to win every game possible, but if we did win yesterday, then Forest came to us and beat us uh, on Tuesday. I'd sort of be like, that's also quite funny for, for Bournemouth reasons, but let's do a professional job. Marco Silva will not, let any complacency come into our play. Um, they'll want to. Uh, they want to wrap it up on Tuesday night at home against Forest, and that will dead Forest uh, automatic promotion chances and uh, and help Bournemouth, which is extremely ironic. All right. Well, we will preview the Forest game in a little bit more detail later. We'll take a break here. Afterwards, we'll get in some of your questions. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James, who are Jack Kelly, Dan Cook and Tom Greatrex from the Fulham Supporters Trust. Uh, let's get into some of your questions in a second. We're going to go to Instagram. But first of all, just kind of wanted to touch on loyalty points. Um, some of you may have seen that I wrote an article for Fulhamish a couple of weeks ago, looking at the loyalty points distribution. Obviously, it was an extremely high number that you needed to get uh, a Bournemouth ticket yesterday. Uh, it was more than I had. I managed to get offered a ticket at the last second by a very uh, generous fan who had a, a late spare which was um, very nice and if you haven't read the article it's there's a lot of detail in it I'm not going to go into everything right now but it was looking at whether the system just maybe needs tweaking a little bit because what we found out is that if you went to every home and away game for five years consecutively didn't miss a single game um, you would get approximately 650 points on the current system you needed about 850 uh, in order to easily get um, a Bournemouth ticket on Saturday um, Tom I know that loyalty points was brought up at the most recent Fulham Supporters Trust uh, meeting with the club um, from the notes it kind of looked like they passed it off and just kind of said, oh, well, if you change the system, it's always going to upset somebody. Is that the gist of it? Or was there a bit more to it um, from the meeting that didn't quite make the notes? There's slightly more to it than that in the, um, what came across in the discussion we had, which was um, at least partly uh, in reaction to the to the article. I think it was a, the meeting was a couple of days after the article was published. So people had obviously read that as well. Um, is that a sense from um, people involved in the club that they can't win on loyalty points? You know, whatever they try and do, somebody's going to be up in arms about it. Um, but you know, that sort of inertia isn't necessarily the right way to right way to uh, to to deal with these things. And they were asking us to say, well, what would you do? What would you come up with? And so, there's a bit of work we're doing at the moment to sort of try to identify the different ways in which other clubs do it. What's what's fairer? The problem with it is, I think, is calling it loyalty points as opposed to something like away ticket points or something means it's a little bit nebulous about what it's about and in the early days I think you did get extra loyalty points if you spent money in the club shop now that's a long time since that's happened but there will be some loyalty points people have that come from things like that if you buy extra home tickets in some for some games they gave extra loyalty points again not not so much recently but those types of things all end up being part of that balance and mix and someone reminded me yesterday actually that originally when the loyalty points scheme was introduced, there was a suggestion that it would be for a period and then they would fall off. So it'd be, you know, it'd be like rolling five-year period, say, for example. And that might actually help to address some of the some of those concerns that are expressed in the article and exactly what you've just said. Although having said that, I would say yesterday, what struck me, um, it was almost a bit like a reunion from the people that were went home and away in the Tagana season that were there yesterday. Um, there were a lot of people I spoke to who I hadn't seen for a while who don't usually go to away games, but had chosen yesterday as the away game they wanted to go to. And that, I think, just underlines the tension in this because they would describe themselves as being very loyal because they've had season tickets for years and years and years. And they go to every home game and have done for whatever, however many years, don't go very often away. But because of that, they've got historic high loyalty points. And this is the game, unsurprisingly, when you look at the fixture of the start of the season, towards the end, hopefully a sunny day on the South Coast, Scott Parker factor, you know, even before you knew it was, you know, how well we'd both done, it was an attractive fixture with a very small away allocation. And, you know, that's why, but really, it's only really been that game, I think, 
it's been difficult to get a ticket, I would say. Luton, because they didn't apply them. Next season, it'll probably be Bournemouth and Brentford for pretty much the rest of the others. Most people who want to go will be able to get a ticket. And I wonder whether tweaking it in the sense of the loyalty's point scheme, having a sort of rollover period is probably the best way to go rather than a fundamental try to completely reshape it again for the sake of two games. Yeah, I, I, it is an awkward one. And look, I'm not here trying to chastise any Fulham fans. And Lord, I, I, I think I tried to make that clear at the beginning of the loyalty points article was like it wasn't a judgment on anyone. And also it wasn't really about me. I actually think whatever system you would put in, I'm not 100% sure I would always necessarily qualify for that top thousand or whatever. Um, Jack, you are a man that goes um, home and away every game. Fortunately, you had enough points to easily be able to go yesterday which is good i was just interested to know that amongst the crew that you generally go with who i imagine go to a lot of away games difficult away games you know swansea away midweek borough away midweek blackburn away midweek were they all able to get a a ticket Uh, it's it's a hard one isn't it because effectively what this is doing is is putting young fans and old fans kind of head to head which is not something that's particularly pleasant because both sides have different needs and demands and and viewpoints on this it's difficult because i have a, a group that extends out to you know almost you know 25 30 people really in terms of people who go regularly and the majority did go yesterday i mean i have two brothers i go with you know sometimes they're at university this year one of them went one of them didn't a couple missed out a couple weren't fast a couple basically accepted that they would never get one based on their points. But the the majority of people who have been loyal enough this season to go to, you know, the majority of away games did get rewarded with a ticket. And I think that's probably how it should work. I mean, I don't like having this discussion because it upsets people and people have very different opinions and you can't um, please everyone. Personally, I've missed one Fulham game home and away in five years. Uh, And that was this season's Barnsley game due to COVID. Uh, and I've now racked up a thousand points. And I think if you're on about 950, 900, I'd say, or over, you're basically guaranteed a ticket to every single game that you want to go to, even if there's loyalty points or not. I just want there to be a system where everyone has a, you know, everyone who's loyal. Now, you know, I don't like talk. I don't. I don't. I don't like putting my finger on it because I don't want to upset people. I don't, I don't, I don't think. Wanna... Look, look, you can say it with the caveat, Jack. It's fine. Like I think most people listen to this are grown up to enough to not understand that loyalty is a ambiguous word. But we're talking mm. about people that go home and away regularly, right? And if I'm being honest, what I hear Tom say when people choose to go to Bournemouth as their one away game of the season, uh, yeah, I get that, doesn't quite sit right with me if it is excluding people that go regularly that's that's my thing and i'm sure there are people that are in that exact situation listening now and it's not a judgment you are just using the system that's there and you are fully entitled to your ticket because that's the system that's in place it's not their fault the, pro- the problem is sammy like people's lives change quite drastically you know due to work university studies anything so if you've gone for years and years in the years of 2005 to 2010, but now can't due to family or you moved away. And there's that one game you want to go to uh, where you feel like, you know, and you have the points to do so. You're, you're, in, you're within your rights. It's just, um, it's, it's just one of those ones where it's like, oh, I've only turned up for my one game 
this season. Uh, and people will people will then question you and go, well, where have you where were you Blackburn midweek? But do they need to change the system? Perhaps does that then affect myself and like my friends' loyalty points? It will. Will they be happy about it? I'm not sure. So you can't please everyone. And that is what I've learned about life. You can't please everyone. <laughs> That's um, just the world we live in. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dan, any, any more on this or should I move on to the questions? No, not really. I mean, I, I fall somewhere between the bracket, I guess, of, of you, Sammy and Jack in the sense that, you know, I'm not every game away, but I, I said to you earlier, I've done a, I worked out, I've done 80% over the past three or four years. Um, but have only been a season ticket holder for the past two years, despite doing most home games from 2008 till now. And I sat at three days off being able to get a ticket for this. And if it wasn't for for shout out Harrison Winter for getting me a ticket um, because he couldn't go, I wouldn't have been able to go. And it feels a bit unfair because you talk about things like Middlesbrough away midweeks, Swansea away midweek, and you think that you deserve something for that. But again, I'm 24 and there are Fulham fans out there who are in their 70s and 80s who have followed this club from when we were nowhere. And I think that also deserves a lot of respect. And and that is also a, a big definition of loyalty. That, as we said, it's just got so many different connotations, the word loyalty. It's so difficult to talk about. Yeah, 100%. Uh, my thing would just be like a review. And it look, looks like the Fulham Supporters Trust uh, are on that. And if ultimately the review looks at and says the current system is probably the path of least resistance then i think i would be absolutely fine with it and look i'm not here banging down the doors i'm gonna like doing a placard outside the ticket office i did a bit of an article into it i I was semi-interested i got a lot of messages from people that were disappointed for various reasons that maybe their younger son couldn't go because they were young and they felt like it was um, but then i got plenty of messages from people that also said that I think the system's fairly reasonable as it is now. So like it's 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 a controversial one and I think we'll leave it there for now. And look, if you're if you're listening to this and you're upset, I'm sorry. Certainly not my intention. Um let's get on to some questions. Uh Dan Cooper asks, uh Jack, I'll go to you on this one. Who should be the starting right back and left back in the Prem? Currently we have four, um, but it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? Because we do seem to be changing them around a lot. We've had Joe Bryan start yesterday, Anthony Robinson and come off the bench Nico Williams dropped out the squad yesterday and came Kenny Tete there's talk about us signing new left backs and right backs it's one of the positions in the side that I'm least certain about what we're doing going ahead into August yeah and I think that's an area we'll definitely look at but right now on paper I've been banging this drum for a few weeks me and Joe on the Jack and Joe show that we would love to see Kenny Tete start a right back and Nico Williams start a left back you know Nico Williams is a player who's played at that left wing back or left back for Wales. He's, he's, he's well equipped to do it. I don't see why we don't do it. Um, I know that there's assets that Robinson has, like his pace, he can get back and um, track runs really well. But I think Nico Williams is such a silky player uh, that I think that either side will actually will benefit him. And Kenny Tete is, a, you know, three, four years ago, he was playing Champions League semi-finals. Uh, I still think he's a very, very good fullback at Premier League level. So it's something where I, I would be, I'd be amazed if we did an upgrade or, or at least uh, we make that. Obviously, we've got to make Williams permanent as well. So I, I think a couple of fullbacks could be of interest in the summer. But on paper right now, I, I really want to go with Williams at left back and see what he's all about. 
Okay, and and, and similarly question, Dan, we didn't really discuss it in the first part, but um, MS2 Footy says, did you think Joe Bryan had an overall good performance and what would you rate it out of 10? It was a funny one because he had to go off. He absolutely needed to be subbed when he did at half time. I didn't think he did that badly, but he was just giving away so many fouls. Yeah, I don't think he played badly. I don't think he made any obvious errors. I thought he was comfortable in possession. I think my one criticism that actually comes up a lot with Joe is that sometimes I feel like he holds onto the ball for that second too long, especially in a press. And he sometimes seems to just play himself into a little bit of danger. Uh, but I thought he played fine. It, it was a tricky job. It was so, so congested up on our left, their right flank in that first half. It was a bit of a melee. But I, I would also like to say, I thought Anthony Robinson defended really well in the second half. I thought he was very solid. He he was dealing with, you know, an overload on his side. He wasn't always getting the most amount of help from Nisans Cabano. And I thought Anthony Robinson looked very good. I was really impressed with that performance. He was pretty comfortable in possession. I, I, I thought both fullbacks performed admirably and I think that's where people sometimes maybe need to check themselves with this debate because I wonder if the overall quality of our squad sometimes makes for some reason our left backs seem worse than they actually are and I I think every single championship team would take either of our left backs and I would argue that there are probably some Premier League teams would too I think we're blessed in a way, even though it's been a, such an awkward debate. They're both very capable footballers. And if you had to tell me which one would I like in the Premier League, I think that probably I would go with Anthony Robinson because I just think that he is a little bit more rounded and I would maybe trust him more, especially in one-on-one defending situations. Obviously, the quality that Joe can provide on the ball is better than that of Robinson's. But if you actually drill down into Anthony Robinson's raw numbers this season, he has been the most creative left back in the league. And you can't dispute that because the numbers say it as fact. He has the highest expected assists. He's created the most chances from left back in the league. So he's clearly a very capable player. Yeah, uh, I thought Anthony was fantastic um, second half. I really did. I just thought he came on. I think he um, his first touch or something was like <laughs> yeah. terrible. And he like, I think it wasn't actually a corner, but it was completely needless throwing right by the corner flag. I was thinking, oh no, here we go, Anthony. And then after that, he just picked up massively and our left was definitely our most threatening side. And I think Anthony had a big part to play in that. Uh, Tom, we've got two questions here, very similar. Uh, Connor Daly and also Will Clements both asking effectively, if we win the league by or at the Luton game, will we lift the trophy then or will it wait until the final day of the season? I think there are tentative plans that there could be a presentation at the Luton game. Um, And I think actually Tim Ream gave that away slightly in his um, irritated tweet at at the kickoff time being, or the kickoff date being shifted and what that would mean for having kids there and if there was a presentation. Um, so if we've done it by then, you know, if we do it on, uh, manage to do it on, uh, on Tuesday night or results mean that by Tuesday, on Tuesday night is that we can, we can win it following Monday. Then I think there will be a presentation on Monday. Yeah. Do you think there would still be a presentation if it wasn't done by the Luton game? Like, let's say we needed a point or, or three points against the Luton do you think that means that actually they'll just wait till the Sheffield United game? I, I realise I'm just asking your opinion here. I know you don't know, but I'm just asking your thoughts. If against the Luton game, we go into that game, so needing a point and we win or draw, then I suspect we'd find that the trophy would be there to be presented so it can be done in front of the 
home crowd. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be very nice. I mean, I'm all, I mean, if it has to be at the Sheffield United game, um, I think we're getting three thousand tickets for that one. Yeah. I think it seems like tickets are selling fast for it as well. I know I need to get sorted with mine, um, so that would you know still be a nice occasion. I think it'd be best if we could do it at home, but still. Wherever we lift a trophy, I'm sure it will be. Uh, I'm sure it will be very fun. Uh, final one, just on that final counter attack. Um, ben Walker asks, "I'll go to you on this one, Jack. Should someone have taken a red stopping that counter attack at the end? I mean, a I wouldn't really call it a counter attack. It was just a long, effectively free kick. But there was something about it, Jack, that was just a little bit annoying how we defended it. I think we allowed Dominic Solanke just to get a completely free header." Um, it didn't feel like enough Fulham players back. That was the odd thing. You know, big goal kick like that. I'd have thought that we would almost have had, you know, a back line of six people. It was all just a bit bizarre how we almost allowed Smith to get into that situation where he got fouled. Yeah, I think I think 80% of added time was fantastically well game managed. Um, I always talk about game management and added time and, and, and how you can see out that time in the most effective way without actually having the opposition posed you a threat and we did it really well. I mean, from what I could see, I literally was standing at the front, like I said earlier, uh, we were winning throw-ins and corners and like trying to waste time. And then suddenly there was a free kick given. And yeah, the, the, the ball falls quite kindly to Smith. And um, like, like we discussed with the penalty earlier, I think, I think Fulham could have done way better in that situation. Um, got more bodies in the box in and around those Bournemouth players. And yeah, it was just frustrating. Um, but one of those things where, you know, you give away a goal late, you're going to analyse every single player's position. But because of the nature of we're already promoted and, you know, it's not going to sting. It, I didn't lose any sleep over it. I'm not going to lie. But um, yeah, it could have, could have been done better. And I'm sure in the Premier League, there'll be more uh, pressure on those sort of situations given uh, better quality of players. And we have to adapt to that better. Do you think, Dan, it was the effect of tape nightclub? Just, you know, concentration levels just not uh, not lasting till the very last second? I am just being facetious, obviously. <laughs> well, as, when, when Jack said I have, he hasn't analysed the individual positioning of each player, I have because <laughs> I am like that. And basically, I've watched it back a few times. And what happens, what, what I can see happens is that it goes long and Kenny Tete, gets attracted to the ball to try and win the header that's fine um i don't see necessarily a problem with that we're just trying to ch- defend it as best we can the problem i think arises then is because kenny tete's tucked in so far there's no one in that right back slot which is where that space opens up and that's where i think it's harry wilson's fault because that's his flank that's his fullback and in that moment and I think I think this might be a reason why he then puts in that challenge is because he knows it's his man who's got free in that minute in that second and he's panicked there because he knows he should have been there already and that's where the gaps opened up and so I, I, I just think it was it was just a draining game it was a hot day it was high intensity it's mentally draining as well and I think it's just in those moments especially as a forward you know Harry Wilson didn't necessarily ha- he had one of those games where things didn't quite go his way again where he's, he gets into good positions and it just doesn't quite come off for him other than the assist and it was just one lapse of concentration in the 95th minute of a day when it was 20 degrees the sun was coming down we've had a tough run of fixtures just yeah lapse of concentration and it's, I, I feel really bad because I think Harry Wilson will take it quite personally and I think it'll be quite down about it uh, but it is also his fault 
<laughs> so you thought you'd really cheer him up by just saying and he'll be really down about it but so he should be um, it's effectively what you just said um, yeah, it's, a, it's a tough one isn't it but it's just so frustrating because I was almost half wondering if the referee might blow his whistle during the free kick but of course Mr Scott he, wants, he was waiting for his, his final moment yes Dan? This is your fault Sammy because I was stood next to you and you did the thing of you got your phone out and you started recording, expecting the final whistle to go. And then it didn't. And then the penalty occurred. And I witnessed you press stop on your phone recording and put your phone back in your pocket and just go, oh. <laughs> it was my you fault. You tempted fate, Sammy. I did tempt fate a little bit. I really just thought that was the moment the final whistle was going to go. So I thought, oh, but this would be great. It'll be the celebrations. And then, yeah, I just was like, oh, put that back in your pocket, Sammy. Uh, we have one final question. You've absolutely pulled my pants down there. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, George Pucky uh, asks uh, opinions on the possible Milinkovic Savage move. Um, a ridiculous rumor um, from, I don't think ridiculous in the fact, it's, it's unbelievable because I don't think it's going to happen. All it said, though, is that Fulham have made inquiries. Um, we could also make inquiries to sign Neymar this summer. You know, we could make inquiries to sign anyone. Um, also, it does seem like maybe Mitrovic has put in some kind of word and said, go on, mate, come to Fulham. Um, is there any chance of this happening? Yes. Yeah? Why not? Like, what? why not? I mean, I know, obviously... I, 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 maybe the fact we're not in the Champions League? Look, I think... The attraction of London, you know, a Premier League club. I'm not deluded. I just think that it's possible, but I don't think we have the uh, the finances to, to complete a transfer like that on just one player. I think it'd be too risky for our season. Honestly, if Agent Mitrovic pulls this off, we've had this discussion about a statue before. If genuinely this happens, which I can't imagine it will, statue immediately, because that would be the most insane signing we've ever made. Um, I also think someone made a very good point that in the same article, it references that we are interested in his brother, Vanya, who is a goalkeeper, and suggestions that maybe someone has heard Fulham interested in Milinkovic Savic and then forgotten that he actually has a brother who would be more likely to join us than the, uh-huh. the guy who is eye, being eyed up by Juventus, Manchester United, et al. Well, it's interesting you say that, Dan, because I do know one of the people that was behind the publication of this rumour. Uh, it's the same person that was behind the publication of the Christian Eriksen rumour in January. And a lot of people actually came at Fulhamish because we republished a rumour. Um, it definitely wasn't us that started it and said, oh, well, that's not true. And and the Christian Eriksen thing, as far as I know, was true. We made an inquiry, but anyone can make an inquiry about anyone. And it was a genuine inquiry, right? If it wasn't Brentford, he probably wanted to play in London. We were top of the championship. It would have been a nice place for him to recuperate and, and get back to the fitness that he needed. And I think this thing with Milinkovic Savage is that we've made an inquiry is it going to happen? Probably not. Almost certainly not. As you say, United are potentially eyeing him up as a future Pogba replacement. So I think that says all you need to know about the absurdity of us actually signing Milinkovic Savic. But hey, back in 2018, no one gave us a prayer of signing John Mikel Seri. And look, I think we've all found out that maybe John Mikel Seri's level is not that kind of like top, top tier club that he was once linked with. But strange things have happened, but this would be 
kind of maybe Carlos Tevez, Javier Mascarano signing for West Ham kind of levels of absurdity if it was able to be pulled off. But we'll see. Tony and Shade were there yesterday. Maybe they had a few bubble, uh, bottles of bubbly and they uh, offered Sergei a, a ridiculous contract that he, he can't turn down and he's going to be uh, coming down to SW6 uh, in the summer. We'll uh, wait and see. Right, we're going to take a quick break. Afterwards, we'll quickly preview Nottingham Forest on Tuesday. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Dan, Tom and Jack. Forest on Tuesday, one of our most difficult fixtures of the season. I feel like we've said that quite a lot of late, but I think uh, unless you've been living in a cave, you'll know that Forest have had a remarkable few months since Steve Cooper took the job. Uh, Forest were bottom when he was appointed. They are now fifth in the table and absolutely flying. Barring that loss to Luton uh, on Good Friday, they've pretty much um, been unbeaten in 2022. It has been a a remarkable run. Um, They are almost certainly guaranteed of the playoffs. Um, Tom, this will be a really, really tough game, especially for a Fulham side that, yes, wants to wrap up the title, but won't have quite as much motivation as Forrest. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, Forrest have been hugely impressive uh, second half of this season. I think Steve Cooper, obviously there was a lot of speculation he could have been our manager um, before he before he went to Forrest. Um, and I think he's a very, very good manager, very good coach. Got a lot out of some of the players that were already at Forest that weren't doing very well under the previous managers, and that's always a good sign. As well as I think some of the players that he's brought in, although obviously some of them are on loan and they might not have them next season. But you know, when people were sort of talking yesterday and say, "Well, you know, it should be," um, it'd be quite funny if we lost to Forest because it might mean that Bournemouth might have less chance of going up and all that sort of stuff. Actually, I've got a different view: is that I think if you're gonna if you're gonna be in the luxuries of choosing who goes up with you, I would rather it's Bournemouth and Forest because I think Cooper is a much better manager. And I think, you know, our realistic target next season of being top 17, we need three teams worse than us. And I, I have a feeling that if Forest did go up, um, the, the, the clout of the club, the, the skill and the scope of that manager, who they'd be able to get in, they might be a tougher opponent than maybe uh, Bournemouth would. Yeah, 100%. And you just know that people will be getting very excited about Forrest back in the uh, Premier League. A lot of kind of top six fans that I know when they talk about the championship, they ask about Fulham, they say, oh, I'd love Forrest to go up. It's that kind of cliche, isn't it? They're one of those clubs that everyone wants to see in a proper Premier League, don't they? Um, and and Fulham probably aren't a team that people want in a proper Premier League. Although a lot of um, match-going fans like having Fulham there for the away day. So at least we have... Um, that one going for us Uh, I mean Jack clearly um, Jed Spence has been pretty much their star player but they've got good players all over the pitch Brennan Johnson uh, is an absolutely fantastic player as well well how do you see this going because I I, in my head I've completely written this off as a 3-0 win for Forest for some reason just because they're flying and I'm just really not confident it's the least confident I've been going into a Fulham match all season the way in which Cooper has built this Forest team from where they were uh, at the beginning of the season, it is quite remarkable. Was it Chris Hewton who, who was in charge at the beginning of the season? They were absolutely woeful. It's been a remarkable turnaround, but I think on paper, Fulham have the better players. I mean, let's not forget, we went to the city ground under Cooper and won 4-0, albeit some of the goals are a bit weird. Uh, there's a penalty in there as well, but 
I think we're good value, you know, and we're going to have the motivation of three points is basically essentially going to take us um, and be make us champions. So I'm not I'm not afraid of this game. I haven't written it off. I think there's a good chance to get three points. There's a narrative around Bournemouth and Forest, but ultimately, like I said earlier, Silver's going to be focused on getting the title uh, wrapped up at the cottage on Tuesday night, and I think we will do it. I think we'll win it. I think we'll win the game. Uh, but look out for James Garner. He's absolutely fantastic. He's a brilliant player. Um, Dan, where do you sit on the Sammy Jack spectrum with Jack being ever the optimist and Sammy thinking that um, you might as well just uh, not turn up because Forrest are going to win this 3-0? Somewhere in the middle. Can I say that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> as ever. Um, yeah, I, I, it, they are a very good team and they've been on an incredible run. And as Jack said, they've got some very good players. And as a quick side note, Brendan Johnson just, just is, is a player that I like a lot. And I think if we're talking about a potential Fabio Carvalho replacement, if Forrest don't go up, it would be one I would like quite a lot. How much that would cost, I'm not sure. Um, I think that one thing I don't think people should take, I, I, I'll say if we don't win, one thing I don't want people to say is that we were complacent because this has been bugging me a, a bit recently. Uh, and the past two games I've seen, I've seen no complacency from this Fulham team at all. This is a team that looks so driven in the fact that they want to make sure that they finish this season top of the table, that if we go out and we, and we lose on Tuesday night, it will be, will be because we weren't the better team on the night, not because we didn't want it enough. I think that What's tricky is the system that Forest play. It's that three, four, one, two, whatever, however you want to call it. It's going to be. I would expect to see their front two doing what Bournemouth do, which is sit on our two centre backs, try to stop us playing, try to disrupt us, and it just falls down to how well can we beat their intensity. You know, if we get it right, if we play how we played against them at the City Ground, where we didn't deserve to win four 0 but also we didn't give away that many chances, we were clinical then I don't see why we can't come away with a win. And so if you ask me to call it, we'll go 2-1 Fulham. And uh, Tom, there are some records that can be broken on Tuesday night. We're obviously on 99 goals. Um, So one more goal for the 100, which would be great. And I think would signify how great an attacking return we've seen from the squad this year. If we can reach 100, surely you'd think with three games left, we will do that. And Mitrovic now one off Guy Whittingham's record and equaling it. Obviously, I know he'll want to go one better and beat it, but equaling it would still be uh, a huge achievement. So that's some extra motivation, particularly for Mitrovic. Yeah. Well, no, if we end up losing 3-2 and Mitrovic scores both goals, then I won't be too unhappy. Yeah, exactly. That's not a bad thought, is it? Yeah, it's just uh, let's get those records over the line. It would be uh, extremely nice just to have those in the bag. And for the 100 goal betters, uh, it'd be a particularly sweet evening. Right, we'll uh, finish it there. Just before we end the podcast, though, we just need to name it. So, Jack, what would you like to go with? I would like to go with, I know I said yellow card confetti was my favourite, but in the context of the game, I would go with Jakob Krupa's Them Fine Margins. Oh, it had to be. It had, had to, to be. be. Yeah, very, very good. I think you've chosen the right name there, Jack. So uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you very much to my panel today. Jack Kelly, thank you to you. Well, thank you, Sammy. Dan Cook, thank you. Thanks for having me, Sammy. And Tom Gretchen, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm only joking about Tuesday. We're obviously going to win it. Uh, See you there. Hopefully we can get three points, which will basically all but secure the championship title, which would be absolutely glorious. Have a great start to your week. Come on, you whites. 